Take a look at the scripture that we've been reading for quite some time now in Romans 1, 16 and 17. It talks about the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. We're going to talk a little bit about that power that comes as a result of belief in the next few Sundays. And our subject today is we talk about basically the, the elements of the gospel concentrated in the message of Jesus Christ begins with our work ethic. So if you would take a look at the next slide, I want you to understand that what we're celebrating this weekend is called Labor Day weekend. And I want you to understand that you, because of the work that Jesus Christ did on the cross have to work no more for your salvation. There's no more work necessary in order for your salvation. How many of you felt Saturday morning around 7 o'clock or 7.02, the earthquake that hit Wichita? Now, thanks to those in Oklahoma, we felt the tremors all the way here in Wichita. I was downstairs in my basement and having coffee at about 7.02 and catching up on some of the latest news and just quietly minding my own business. And all of a sudden, the house started shaking. And I had heard footsteps in, you know, the, the level floor. I knew Patty was awake. Even though she's a very small lady, she is not a very good Indian. She walks on her heels. So you can, you can tell where she is, no matter where she is in the house. And so I knew she was in the kitchen. And and all of a sudden, as the house began to tremor, I heard the, the, uh, the dishes in the china cabinet start really shaking, and I, I heard this yell, Charlie! I don't know what I was supposed to do. And so I sat there. That's what most good husbands do, until it was over, and uh, then went upstairs to assess the damage. And so you probably know where you were when the earthquake hit at 7.02 Saturday morning. You know, the Bible describes an earthquake that hit the world, too, nearly 2,000 years ago. It was an earthquake that took place when Jesus Christ died on the cross. John's gospel helps us understand that while Jesus was on the cross, he simply said, I am thirsty, and they gave him something to drink. Upon receiving something to drink, he then made an incredible statement that I think sometimes we overlook. He made this statement that really applies to us today. He declared, it is finished. It is finished. Indicating that the work that he had come to do by dying on the cross had been complete. The work was done, and he died. Matthew 27 helps us realize that when he died, there was an earthquake that took place that was felt by many in Jerusalem, if not everyone there, and rocks fell. And as a result of that, Jesus dying created an earthquake. And that earthquake, I believe, was an announcement by God to everyone in the Jerusalem that my work on the cross through my son Jesus Christ is finished. The work is done. There's no more work that needs to be done on the cross. My son has died. They took his lifeless body and they put it in a tomb. But three days later, we discover that he rose from the dead. 
And do you realize that on the third day when he rose from the dead, God once again announced that his work was finished through the resurrection of his son Jesus Christ through an earthquake, announcing that the work, not just through the cross, but now through the resurrected Jesus Christ is now finished. The work is done. There's no more work necessary now by which men need to work in order to receive access and salvation from God. No more work for our salvation. There's no more work for my salvation or for yours if we put our faith and trust in Christ. Tomorrow is Labor Day. Back in the late 1800s, the, uh, there was a, a movement to create what we call now Labor Day weekend, and they set aside the first Monday in September from then on to celebrate what we call Labor Day weekend. Why do they celebrate Labor Day? It's an opportunity for us as a nation to celebrate the workers who actually build the United States of America, those of us who are working to build things. We are celebrating our work ethic as Americans. Now, one thing we take great pride in in the United States of America is a work ethic. We do. At least we did more at one time than we do now. We're losing some of that. But America has widely been known by its work ethic because we have been known to be worker bees who are builders, who are constructors, who are doers, who, who accomplish and achieve great things. So we celebrate Labor Day. And because I think of sometimes this element that we have as Americans who have an incredible work ethic, that sometimes we bring that work ethic into our salvation. Much like in the day in which the Apostle Paul wrote Romans 10, 1 through 8, He's writing to a group of people who were Israelites. They're his fellow kinsmen. And the Jews of his day had an incredible work ethic, so much so that they developed a work ethic that, it, that they believed would achieve, would earn, would merit their own salvation. They believed that they could work hard enough, long enough, and good enough, they could attain by their, their own work ethic salvation. And it's for that reason, for the most part, Jews rejected Jesus when he came. He came to establish a different way by which man could be saved. A righteousness that is achieved not by our own work ethic, but by grace through faith. In him being the ultimate and final sacrifice, who would eventually die upon a cross, take his sins upon himself, our sins upon himself, die in our place, and then be raised from the dead, so that he being the ultimate and final complete work that needed to be done through God in result, as a result of our sin could then gain us, not just access to God, in this incredible redemptive work by having this incredible relationship with God the Father through faith in Christ the Son, but ultimately our own salvation. Because you see, in order for us to be saved, we must possess a certain righteousness by which we need to be saved. And that righteousness in and of ourselves, independently apart from Christ, could never be achieved, no matter how hard we try. And the Jews rejected Jesus primarily for that fact. They had developed their own system, their own legalistic system, by which they believed that if they could work hard enough, they could pull themselves up by their own bootstraps and save themselves. So therefore, they didn't need Jesus. They rejected him. In Romans chapter 10, not just chapter 10, but other chapters, chapter 4 and chapter 5 and chapters 3 and several other chapters, it's interesting that God, through the Apostle Paul, 
continues to seek the salvation of those Israelites, those worker bees, so to speak, to turn from their work ethic and turn to the work and the final complete work of Jesus for their salvation. And it's here in this text in Romans 10, 1 through 8, that I think it's important for us to look at during this Labor Day weekend. Now, why is this important to us? Not only because I think it's important to us because it's, it's, it's a way by which we are saved. We have to abandon our own work ethic and accept the work that's been done for us in humility, turning to Jesus and recognizing, I can't save myself. And, and Jesus did it all, made it all possible. It's not what he did, but it's what, he, what has been done and based upon that ultimate and final work, that I put my trust in that I'm saved. But after salvation, I think it's interesting that if we're not careful, we have a tendency, if we're honest, to become very legalistic. For most of us in here would probably realize and recognize that when we were saved, we came to the humbling experience of recognizing that I can't save myself and that only Jesus can save me. So I put my faith and trust in his redemptive work on the cross and he died for my sins and I'm, I'm, I'm confident that's why. I'm, and then we go on to live the Christian life and then we become very legalistic in how we live for him as if somehow my legalism, my righteousness, my obedience somehow gains me access to God or favor from God above someone else because of the way I live and the way they do not live. And that same grace that was mine at salvation is still the same grace in my salvation. I no longer have to work to be acceptable to God in His presence because I stand on the righteousness of Jesus regardless of how I live or don't live. Because you know what? You can never live up to the righteous demands or expectations of the law. You'll never live a sinless life in this life. Think about that. You'll never live a sinless life in this life. Put on a mask, play the game, declare it, but you're a liar. And you're living in hypocrisy because the law always exposes our sin. And isn't it interesting that the moment I, I recognize my sin and I, I ask for forgiveness of that sin, then all of a sudden I, I open the Bible and bam! Hits me like a ton of bricks. Boo! Another one? And then I, I get that one right and then I, I open the Bible again. Another one? For ignorance, as we're about to see, is no excuse for our lack of humility and our dependence upon Christ. So what does the Apostle Paul, under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, have to say to those who are legalistic, those who somehow think that by their lifestyle, by their morality, they can somehow please God? And, and it's interesting that those who live that way are very judgmental upon those who don't live up to this moral ethic code by which they too can be acceptable to God. So let's take a look at the text. For those who work for their salvation, there are five interesting arguments or considerations that the Apostle Paul gives to those that he's writing in Romans chapter 10. Now notice what he says right off in the first verse of Romans 10.1. For those who work for their salvation, there is a discovery. 
What's the discovery that he's wanting them to understand? Here's the discovery in a nutshell. No one, no one is beyond God's salvation. No one is beyond God's salvation. Now, we often have a tendency to think that when we talk about no one is beyond God's salvation, that we have a tendency to believe that that this person is living a vile, sinful life, the prodigal life. They're living in sin with harlots and drunkenness and all that. And we think those people are not beyond God's salvation. But the Apostle Paul is saying here that those of us who are living moral lives are also not beyond God's salvation. And how many of us would say, as we observe our neighbor, they're good people? But are they saved? Moral people need salvation as much as immoral people. And there's some very good people today that you work alongside, that you live with, you go to school with, you you play ball with. They're good people, but good people still need Jesus. And good people are not beyond the need for salvation. Paul says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. Who is he addressing? Who is he talking about? He's talking to his fellow kinsmen who have rejected Jesus as their Messiah for hundreds of years. They have been awaiting their Messiah to arrive. They have been studying the scriptures, and now he has arrived. And when he arrived, they rejected him. They tried him. They crucified him. They buried him, but he rose from the dead. For the most part, Israel, most Jews, rejected Jesus, and yet in their morality, as they rejected Jesus, because he was presenting a righteousness that was different from the one that they wanted, they were good moral people, they still needed to be saved in spite of their rejection of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul is saying, I have a desire that they be saved. They're good moral people, but they still need Jesus. Even in your best morality, people still need Christ as their Savior. And you may know somebody that's, that somehow has convinced themselves, you know, I'm a pretty good person. Do I need Jesus? And the answer is yes. So don't give up on the immoral, the immoral but don't give up on those who claim to be moral. The Apostle Paul is saying to those who are living in this work ethic to earn and to deserve and to merit their own salvation by working for it, you need Jesus, and I'm praying for you. We, we studied this passage in great length Wednesday night for about 40 minutes. I could, and I may resurrect that sermon on Wednesday night for a Sunday morning here sometime. But are you, do you have a desire a burning passion to see lost people saved? I'm not just talking about the immoral in our community, in our country, but I'm talking about the the good people, the moral people, the upstanding citizens. Do we have a desire, a passion, a drive to to pray? And this word prayer is petition. It is a, a, a... a relentless praying for the lost community around us, that they might be saved. The Apostle Paul is praying for them. Why? Because he knows God's heart, and God sent Jesus first to the Jews. Why? Because he wanted to save them. And just because they initially rejected them doesn't mean that he still doesn't want them to be saved. 
He wants them to turn from their work ethic and turn to the work of Jesus on the cross, and he desires them to be saved. And the Apostle Paul begins in this address in Romans 10:1 by saying, I want you to discover something, that even though you rejected Christ, you crucified him, he still wants you to be saved. So that's the discovery. In their work ethic, he not only wants them to discover that he wants them to be saved, Brothers, my heart's desire is to pray to God for them that they may be saved. But notice in verse 2, in this discovery, there's a danger. And the danger is simply that they have a false sense of security. They believe that in their righteousness, in their work ethic, that what they are doing, they are working their way into God's favor. And eventually, because of the way that they're living, they're going to be saved. And the Apostle Paul is warning these people who are working for their salvation, you're living in danger. And here's the danger. Notice the verse, verse 2. For I bear witness, bear them witness. I, the Apostle Paul, bear them witness. Who was Paul? He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He was a self-righteous man of the self-righteous. If you know anything about Paul's life, before he became a Christ follower, he hated the Christian cult. He sought everything that he could to, to, to stamp it out, to, to dissolve it, to persecute it, and, and to kill Christians. He was there when they stoned Stephen, held his coat, and cheered while they stoned him. I mean, I mean, he believed that he was so righteous, I don't need a Savior. I am saving myself by my own righteousness, by my own work ethic. And as a result of him being like them, he understands them. And because he was like them and because he understands them, he is bearing witness to the fact that they believe this because he was one of them. It's, it's interesting that, that, it, that, that the Apostle Paul could describe them so well because he was one of them. And he said, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. That word zeal is an interesting word. It means excessive Zeal, or, or, or the word I'm looking for is for fervor. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a passion, it's a drive, it's, it's, a, it's a, a, a motivation that, that seeks with all of its heart, with all of its mind, with all of its soul, with everything that it possibly can to achieve and attain that goal which it is seeking to achieve. It is a, a zeal for God. They had a zeal for God. They, they, they had a a drive to know God and to live for God and, and to be the children of God and, and everything in their being and their fiber, they had this passion, this jealousy for God and they were driving with every ounce of energy and, and effort they could possibly afford in, into achieving this goal of, of being close to God. They had a zeal for God, but he says, notice, not according to knowledge. Not according. They lack sufficient knowledge. There was a lot of effort. There was a lot of passion. There was a lot of work. There was a lot of drive. There was a lot of effort. Man, they were tireless in their pursuit of God, but in spite of their hardest work, they were doing it with a lack of knowledge. I was with a, a pastor here last week while I was at a conference in Colorado Springs and uh, Roger Yancey, and I don't hope he doesn't watch this tape, but uh, I know he's preaching somewhere today. But Roger and I were traveling around, and uh, his his uh, his Garmin wasn't working very well, and we got lost multiple times in Colorado Springs. Now we were in conference from about eight thirty to about six o'clock every day, 
They didn't provide dinner for us. And by the time you sit in a conference room for that, I, I don't know about you, but I can't sit that long. It drives me nuts. And so I was, oh man, it wore me out. And so we barely had enough energy, in my opinion. And I would get up early in the morning and, and exercise in Colorado Springs. And in the altitude, that, that wore me out to begin with. But anyway, so, so he would use this garment to get us to a place to go eat. And uh, we got lost. Because the Garmin, for whatever reason, wasn't working in Colorado. I don't know why, but it wasn't. But in our best effort, we typed in an address and sought to drive to where we expected to get there. And we put forth the energy and the effort and the gas and the time to get there. But we got there, and it was the wrong place. And we tried it again, and it was the wrong place. And we tried it again, and it kept taking us to the wrong place. Finally, it became a joke. And then it got to be more than a joke. It became frustrating. So the two evenings we drove around, I just got in the car and said, well, we're going to get lost. You know? Uh, you can type in the right address you think is the right address. And have the best intentions and the best effort and the best work ethic and the best everything to get there. But if you've typed in the wrong address, you might get there. But guess what? It's the wrong address. The wrong destination. And these people had a destination in mind. They had an idea where they wanted to go. And they were typing into their garment, into their brains, into their hearts working as hard as they can to get to this and to arrive at this place. And in all of their best effort, they arrived there, but they were arriving at the wrong place. And Paul is saying you're in danger because you're living under this false sense of security that in the end, you're going to arrive at salvation, but you're not. And that's sad. Because I used to be like one of you. So those who work for their salvation, there's a discovery and a danger. Thirdly, there's a disappointment. There's a disappointment. And that disappointment is that even though they're living righteously, even though they believe they're heading for the right place, as I mentioned earlier, the disappointment is they're not going to arrive where they think they're going to arrive. In the end, when they stand before God and give an account of their lives, he's going to say, why should I let you into my heaven? And they're going to say, because I worked for it. He's going to say, depart from me. I never knew you. And they're going to live then for eternity with this disappointment because they will not arrive at the destination that they hope to live and to arrive in as they were seeking to do. And notice it says in verse 3, for being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. They were ignorant. Now, I know that some of you think that uh, my wife has an accent. She's from Texas. And uh, I don't really have somewhat of the Texas accent. But in Texas, Brother Mark, it's ignorant. Isn't it? Ignorant. These buddies were ignorant. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God. In other words, they, they just didn't know. They were ignorant. They, 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 they were not aware of what was right. They were, they were just flat out dumb. It's kind of like Forrest Gump's mama said, stupid is as stupid does. They just weren't too bright. Their elevators didn't go all the way to the top. 
They lacked a few french fries in their Happy Meal. They were ignorant in regard to what God said was righteousness. They didn't fully comprehend nor understand. And because they did not, notice they sought to establish their own. That word sought or seeking to establish their own, meaning that they put every effort they could in order to attain the goal, to establish, to create, to build up a system of their own because this system that they built up for their own was for their own glory. It wasn't for God's glory. So they built a system, this legalistic system of their own. It was not God's. It was their own doing. They believed that it was God's, but it was not. And because they built up this own system of their own building, their own doing, they built it up themselves. They missed God and they were ignorant. And they failed then because of that then to submit to the righteousness of God. They failed to receive Jesus, who was the fulfillment of the righteousness of God. That's the reason they rejected Jesus. Is because Jesus did not measure up to what they set, to what they established as their righteousness before God. And they completely rejected him. It's kind of like the good old boy thing. And sad, sadly, that in, in, in almost four decades of pastoring, I have attended many funerals in which I have sat. And if I attend a funeral, it's mostly in the back seat not to draw too much attention to myself, and, and uh, I have heard many, many times funeral messages, unlike the one we heard yesterday and, and had yesterday, where Joe Boy's a good old boy. He's a good old boy. And you know, good old boys, they go to heaven when they die. He's a good old boy. And they start listing all these accomplishments and all these achievements and all these accolades about Joe Bob because he's a good old boy. And because of all these things, he's in heaven now. He's a good old boy. And I wonder about people like that and the disappointment they're going to receive when they stand before God and and they begin to give an account of their lives. And he brings out the letter of the law and begins to recite. And their sins are all of a sudden exposed. All of their lack of, of no matter, in spite of their best work ethic, in spite of their best effort, they didn't measure up to the letter of the law and they failed the standard of God. They, they measured up to their own standard, the standard that they established. And they sought that standard with their best effort. But that effort, in spite of their best effort, was not. God's standard. And the end result is disappointment. Because they rejected God's standard. Fourthly, there's a deliverer. Those who live according to the letter of the law and seek to work out their own salvation need to understand there is a deliverer. There's a defense against our inability to live up to the letter of the law. I mean, that was the reason why God gave the law. We're going to look at, in, in just a minute in this text, that when God gave Moses the law. God knew that when he gave Moses the law, he not only gave Moses the moral law, but he gave Moses the sacrificial law. Two components really to the law. You can, you can sort of divide them into more components than that, but there really are two in my opinion, and we're going to, for, for, for the sake of time, there's a moral standard of the law and there's a sacrificial standard for the law. And there were basically two, and Moses gave somewhat a, 
the Ten Commandments and other things that were the moral code ethic of the law. This is how you should live. And there was a sacrificial part of the law that told you how to sacrifice. Now, the reason he gave the moral law is because the moral law was given to help us understand that that we don't measure up to the law. We can never live up to the letter of the law. And because of that, there's a sacrificial system that the law sets up that when we recognize and realize we can't live up to the letter of the law, where do we turn? We turn to the sacrifice. And on the Day of Atonement, the high priest would go into the, into the Holy of Holies, and they would tie a rope around his ankle, and he would go in and spread blood on the mercy seat for the sins of Israel. The reason they tied a rope around his, his ankle, because in case he died while he was in there, if he was himself with sin and went into the Holy of Holies, he would die, and the only way to get him out was to pull him out by the rope. They weren't going to go into the Holy of Holies where God lives, because only the high priest once a year could go in there. And you see, when they offered sacrifices... They would, they would put their hand on that sacrifice as they then would give that sacrifice and it was then offered upon the altar for the sin sacrifice and it was, it was slaughtered and the blood would flow. That, 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 that goat or that lamb became then the atonement. It became their substitute, their scapegoat where it then became sin for them. That was the sacrificial system that was set up in the law. And so... He gave both the moral law and the sacrificial law. And what the Apostle Paul is saying to these legalists is this, that while there is the law that God is going to hold up as a standard, that law helps us recognize and realize I cannot live up to that standard. And because I cannot, then I turn to the sacrificial standard of the law, and I turn to Jesus who became the ultimate and final sacrifice of God on the altar of Calvary where he took upon himself my sin against God, and through faith in that atoning, sacrificial, redemptive work, then he becomes my complete and final sacrifice. Notice what it says in the text. For Christ is the end of the law... For righteousness to everyone who believes. The word end means the fulfillment of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. He met every single demand of the law. He was righteous. He was fully God and fully man, sinless in his life on this earth. And when he died on Calvary's cross, he assumed sins that were not his own, but our sins, thus dying in our place, Romans 5, 8. For yet while we were sinners, Christ died for us. He became our deliverer. And now what the Apostle Paul is saying, now through faith in Jesus, I put my faith in Jesus now. He becomes the fulfillment for me before God as being the ultimate and final sacrifice where he takes upon himself my sin against God, dies in my place, and now I stand before God acceptable and righteous. Not a righteousness of my own, but a righteousness that I receive through Jesus. But I like it, he says, to everyone. That's unconditional. That means everyone. But the condition is who believes. And the belief here is the whole word meaning the full contents of the message of the gospel of Jesus. But it's interesting, then he writes in verse 5, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandment shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss? That is to bring Christ up in up from the dead and everybody said what in the world is he talking about anybody get a clue 
You read this on the surface, you go, what is he saying? <laughs> Took me quite some time to figure this out. And I had to refigure it out and then refigure it out. But here's my best synopsis of what I believe it says. You got to remember who he's writing to. The Apostle Paul is writing to some legalists. Some people who believe that they can work to earn their salvation. That's the context. So you have to interpret this in light of the context of, of the writing of the book of Romans and especially this text. He's writing specifically to his kinsmen, the Jews who believe that you can work in order to save yourself and have a right standing before God. And so he quotes from Moses. And basically what he's saying is, hey, you do well in believing that living according to the letter of the law gives you some blessing from God. And I think we'd all agree with that, right? Living a righteous life is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. Living according to the laws that God has said is a good thing because even though we're saved, we choose to live righteously not to earn, to merit, or to deserve our salvation, but we, we live righteously because God said it, because we love him and we want to follow him, we want to obey him, not to say, I don't, after I'm saved, I don't live this life in order to be acceptable and saved. I'm already acceptable and saved. I do it because I am acceptable and saved, because I love him. I've already been saved. And so, He's saying to these people, you do well in believing that the law is a good thing to live by because it will bless your life. But he says, notice the righteous based on faith says, do not say it in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to say, bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ from the dead. The law is intended to bring about sin to help us be aware of our sin. And when the letter of the law is we seek to live it out in our day-to-day -day life, we recognize and realize that in our best effort, we can never measure up to the letter of the law. And for that reason, we need Jesus, who is our sacrifice. We need to turn to the sacrifice of Jesus because we can't live up to the letter of the law. Jesus ended both. He ended both the moral and the sacrificial law. Jesus was the ultimate fulfillment. When Jesus died, the, the, the veil was torn in two. And there were no more sacrifices in the temple. Shortly after Jesus dies, the temple is destroyed. And the Jewish faith no longer offers sacrifices to God anymore. Jesus was the fulfillment of the sacrificial law. But he's also the fulfillment of the moral law. And what he's saying to them is to require from God Jesus to descend from heaven one more time to die the death that he died in order to be raised from the dead is foolishness. He has already done it once. He doesn't have to do it again. Once he did it, it is done. Jesus said it is finished. And when it was finished, it was done. There's nothing more that needs to be done for us to stand before God and to stand righteous before God if we'll put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Savior and our Lord. Nothing more. I don't know. If you'll realize that and live that in your daily life, it will free you up, man. It will. I think some of us are, are still trying to earn favor with God. 
like we do our parents. You know, if I, if I do good, they're going to like me and they're going to give me certain things. That's why they call it grace. Unmerited favor from God. And aren't you glad you don't get what you, you deserve? Why? Because we have a deliverer. And he ends with this incredible invitation to a decision. Notice in the last verse, verse 8. But what does it say? The word is near you. There's an opportunity here for you. It's in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. This word of faith is the gospel that he is proclaiming to them, the gospel of Jesus that we saw last week. The gospel is available. Righteousness is available. Salvation is available. Not by your own works, but by the work that Jesus did and now has done on your behalf. All you have to do by faith is to reach out and receive it. That's it. To put your confidence in the death of Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and you will be set free from forever from your condemnation against God for your sin. And one of these days when you stand before God and he were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? Why should I let you into my heaven, you sinner? And what's your response? Because of your mercy, by grace through faith, I put my trust in Jesus as my Savior. My sins were placed on the altar of Calvary on that day when he died. And now because my confidence is in him, I possess his righteousness, not my own. And in humility, we throw ourselves on the mercy of the court. And Jesus, who is our advocate, steps in and said, he's mine. So as we close, there's an interesting comment that I want to make, that the problem we have in trying to work our own salvation is that we have to have some sort of standard. There has to be some sort of standard if you're working to earn your salvation. But what is the standard? Is it a standard of your own design? It is a standard that you set? I guarantee you that no matter how high a standard you set, it's never the standard that God has set. You know what God's standard is? 100% perfect. Zero sin ever. None whatsoever. For all have sinned, it says in Romans 3.23, and fallen short of the glory of God. No matter how high of a standard you set, no matter how high it might be, it falls short of God's standard because it falls short of God. In all of your understanding of God, I don't care how much and how long you've known God, you don't know God in all of His complexity. God is an infinite God, and your understanding of God is a finite understanding. So there's no way in the world that you can set a standard that you believe is as high as God because you don't know all there is to know about God and His character. You just don't. 
That's why it's a lifelong journey of, of experiencing and knowing God because you can never in your finite mind totally comprehend and understand who he is. And because you have that, that lack of ability and that desire to know him and you're constantly growing in him, no matter how high of a standard you set to live up to, it's never the standard that meets God himself. It's always less than God. So no matter what standard you set, it's not going to be the standard that God has set, which is himself. You'll always fall short. In the best effort and the best work ethic you may have, you will always fall short. And everyone around you will always fall short. Now, that's pretty sad, isn't it? But the reality is sometimes our expectations of others is less than ourselves. Isn't it? Little Johnny was called in for dinner. Time to eat supper, dinner, whatever you want to call it. And he was playing out in, uh, in his uh, sandbox, and it had rained before, and there was some mud mixing with sand nevertheless, but he, was, he came in, and his mom told him to wash his hands, and Johnny went into the bathroom and washed his hands and came back, and mom examined his hands and said, not clean enough, I'll wash him again. Little Johnny marched back in there, and three-year-old little Johnny washed him again, and came back in, mom said, let me see your hands, he showed him again, said, no, not clean enough, he went in again. Washed him again. Came back out. She examined him and said, no, no, this time I want you to use soap. So he went in and used soap this time. Washed him, came back. Mom examined his hand and said, not clean enough. He said, Mom, whenever will my hands be clean enough? And she said, your hands will not be clean until I say they are clean. Your life will never be clean enough until God says your life is clean enough. And the only way that you can measure up to God's cleanliness is through Jesus. Your best effort, I don't care what your work ethic is, will never measure up to the standard that God has for you, for me, and for everyone. It's the same standard. And so the decision that we have today is to say, Lord, in all humility, your law convicts me. I stand guilty before you, not only in my salvation, but post-salvation, and I can never in my best work ethic ever measure up. But through Jesus, and because of Jesus, as I put my faith and trust in Jesus, he becomes enough for me. Now, in case some of you are wondering, and I know some of our legalists out there are saying, well, if you tell people they can't be good enough <laughs> to earn the favor and the acceptability and the presence and the, the, fa you know, the, the, the righteousness of God, then are you just giving people permission to sin? Well, I, I can never work enough, so therefore, just throw in the towel and <laughs> just eat, drink, and be merry and live it up, man, because in Christ I am righteous. I can never lose my salvation, so I'm just going to eat. I'm just going to live my life and do my thing. That's not what we're saying. Because if I'm truly humble in recognizing the sacrifice of Christ on the cross, where he took upon himself my sin against God and died into my place, and now I stand in his righteousness because I love him, 
I'm no longer working to earn his favor. I already have it. I'm not only living my life this way because I want to please him. I already please him, not because of anything I've done, but because of what Christ has done. I'm doing what I'm doing because I love him. And we'll talk about that in the days to come. Paul said in Romans 6.1, Should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. We shouldn't take this beautiful righteousness that we have through the beautiful work of Christ on the cross and what he has done for granted. And yet, on the flip side of that, for us who want to work for something, we can never achieve what a rest it is to finally realize it's already been done. That's what salvation is. It's putting your head on your pillow at night when you question your life and your sin and your disappointments and your discouragements and, and, and when the law convicts you and you're aware of your sin, you just know, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> it's not based upon what I do, but it's based upon what you've done. For if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a Savior. Let's pray.